0: All right, all right, all right, the foghorn. Yes, folks, it is time for the Kavis Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavas.
1: And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up, how should the United States respond to the seemingly never-ending rise of China's Navy? A new effort to focus on Chinese naval and maritime expansion is underway, sponsored by the U.S. Naval Institute's Proceedings Magazine. Project originator Hunter Stiers and veteran analyst Brent Sadler will join us to bore into the issue. But first, a quick roundup of naval news around the world.
0: Japan released its annual Defense of Japan white paper on July 22nd. Accompanying the report, Japanese Defense Minister Nobuo Kishi said the military balance between China and Taiwan is shifting in China's favor. Kishi warned that the combination of continued Chinese pressure and Russia's war on Ukraine has created the world's most serious situation since World War II. Among other provisions, the new white paper said that providing Japan with a counterattack capability in case of missile attack is not being excluded.
1: Japan-based U.S. destroyer Benfold Made a Taiwan Strait passage on July 20th, passing through the waterway between Taiwan and mainland China. Earlier in July, on July 13th and 16th, the same ship carried out freedom of navigation passages near Chinese claimed territories in the South China Sea near the Paracel and Spratly Islands. Chinese warships and aircraft tracked the Benfold, and China vigorously protested the moves, saying the U.S.
0: quote, hyped up the moves. NATO warships and aircraft have been tracking the Russian submarines Severodvinsk and Viper as they travel from their northern fleet base near Murmansk to St. Petersburg for upcoming Russian Navy Day celebrations on July 31st, reports Britain's Ministry of Defense. Each submarine surfaced near the British frigate Portland on July 16th and 19th off Bergen, Norway, before the Portland handed over tracking duties to other NATO units. The submarines entered the Baltic Sea, by July 22nd. The Peruvian Corvette we say, suffered an engine room fire on July 17th while taking part in RIMPAC exercises near Hawaii. Two injured crew members were medevaced to Honolulu and the fire was extinguished at sea. The Corvette returned to Pearl Harbor on July 20th under tow for damage assessment.
1: And finally, in new ship news, Austell USA delivered the new littoral combat ship Santa Barbara LCS-32, to the United States Navy on July 21st. Work continues at the shipyard in Mobile, Alabama on three more Independence-class ships, the Augusta, Kingsville, and Pierre. And that's a look at just some of this week's Naval news.
0: While the seemingly inexorable rise and expansion of the Chinese Navy is provoking a wide range of responses, not necessarily from the U.S. and other navies, but also from analysts suggesting what those navies should be doing. A new project to focus on those suggestions is the Maritime Coin Project, coined for counterinsurgency, sponsored by the U.S. Naval Institute's Proceedings Magazine. With, with us today are the originator of the maritime coin idea, Hunter Stires and one of the analysts engaged to write for the project, Brent Sadler, a senior fellow in the Center for National Defense at the Heritage Foundation. Welcome to the podcast, Hunter and Brent. Thanks,
2: Chris. It's a pleasure to be aboard.
0: Thank Uh, you for having me, Chris. Good to see you. Good to have you all here. So, Hunter, first to you. In your view, what is Maritime Coin and why the need for another project?
2: Well, thanks, Chris. That's a a really good question. So I think a, a big part of this comes down to First of all, what is the the nature of the Chinese challenge in the South China Sea? And there is, at and at the core of this question, it's kind of a philosophical question because we see a, a lot of attention being given to China's development of high-end warfighting capabilities like the expansion of the PLA Navy, especially in, in terms of capital ships and, as, and also its expansion uh, and investment in a lot of, uh, long range anti-axis and area denial weaponry. And at the same time, you see, you know, it is not getting nearly as much attention is China's forcible coercion of local civilian mariners. And the philosoph and, and you know, I, I, as I talk about in, in the introduction for to the project and in, a, in other fora, essentially we're, we're t- looking at the essentially fully half the world's fishing fleet operates in the South China Sea. This is a a civilian population of more than 3.7 million people that depends on access to the South China Sea for their daily livelihoods, whether as fishermen or uh, oil and gas uh, explorers and extractors. And this civilian population is being subjected to a concerted campaign of intimidation and harassment. And so the philosophical question at the core of this is what do we make of this? Is this, and which one is the decisive operation, and which is the shaping operation? And really, so the the, uh, to the conventional wisdom in many respects is that the high-end war fighting capabilities investment and essentially this this track of Chinese strategy that is clearly focused on preparing for a high-intensity war in the Western Pacific. It, the, the conventional view holds that this is the decide the kind of China's decisive line of effort. And at the same time, China is working overtime to achieve its objectives without fighting through this kind of maritime coercion. And you know, the kinds of things that they're, they're, these forces are doing to these civilian populations—they are st- Chinese maritime law enforcement forces are stealing fishermen's catch. They are—they uh, they steal radios and navigational equipment from uh, fr- from civilian mariners, especially you know. These are essential implements if you're going to be remotely safe in operating a small craft in a large and very busy and congested waterway. Chinese maritime law enforcement forces will pour gasoline in the drinking water supplies of Vietnamese fishermen. And, they, and for at least 10 years, it has been documented at, at, by an excellent study by the Asian Mar- published in the Asian Mar- Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative uh, by Elena Bernini. For at least 10 years of you know, this documented period of the study, Chinese forces would, would seize and kidnap Vietnamese fishermen for ransom. It's really hard to, when you put all these things together and then you add in you know, that they are ramming and sinking civilian vessels, they're firing on civilian vessels. Uh, with both uh, lethal and less lethal weaponry. It's really hard when you put these things all together, not to come to the conclusion that this amounts to a form of state piracy. And then you add in what is China's strategic objective in, in, in pursuing this campaign at the same time as they are preparing before, uh, for conflict. And I, I think it's, it's pretty clear that their strategic objective here is to undermine and ultimately undo the freedom of the sea. So getting back to this philosophical question where the conventionalism says basically that the investment in high end war fighting forces is the decisive line of effort. And these, these other things that they're doing, the forcible coercion of civilian maritime, oper- uh, maritime populations, um, they, they suggest is perhaps a distraction from that main effort of preparing for some future really bad big war. And I think that the what the, the Maritime Counterinsurgency Project is starting to get at here is that uh, we might have that backwards. And that if China is waging a dual track strategy, they are doing, yes, they are preparing for war, and at the same time, they are, do, they are doing everything they can to, to win without fighting. And it is possible that, that, high, that you know, preparation for high intensity war, maybe that's the shaping operation, that it's designed to distract and deter us from interceding against this line of effort that is actively underway. And if it is allowed to continue, will result in the destruction of the freedom of the sea, which is a foundational US national interest for which the United States has gone to war no less than six times since its independence as a a nation. I mean, the principles of the freedom of the sea are in the Declaration of Independence. You know, in the the section on, you know, reasons we don't like you anymore uh, is, is absolutely at the core of who we are as Americans. And so you, look, you take the China's actions together in this, this low intensity, uh, or you know, by, by some standards, campaign uh, of intimidation and harassment. And what, you, what essentially this adds up to is a cumulative campaign to impose a new set of laws on a civil on this civilian population of of South this maritime of maritime Southeast Asia. And they are they are doing this without first sequent fighting a sequential decisive battle against the mil, the conventional military forces of, of that are defending the established order, and namely us and our, our friends and allies. And so what what this essentially amounts to is that China is waging a maritime insurgency. Right. Against the, the, the rule of international law and the freedom of the sea, this foundational U.S. national interest that we that since 1945 we have been the, the guarantors of.
0: So, Brent, yeah, I mean, you were listening mm-hmm. to this. Hunter's given us a long list of things that the Chinese are doing. Mm-hmm. You your article, your your contribution to this project was called "Win the Contest for a Maritime Rules Based Order." Mm-hmm. Well, if you if you've got one party that doesn't play by any rules ignores all the rules, makes up its own rule as you're coming as you're going along. How do you do that? I mean, Hunter Hunter was just pretty good about laying this out. The Chinese don't really care. If they lose in the World Court, they they don't care.
3: Right. The Chinese are renowned for and coining the term "lawfare." And it, another way of thinking about this Chinese concept is "rule by law." It's not it's not just it's not a form of justice and equal application of law. It's it's using law and legal constructs or uh, a legal framework in order to impose the political power of the communist party in Beijing. So it's a very different concept of what's legal and law, lawful in a Western or liberal context. So that's the first thing. It's a very different cultural and different ideologically political position the Chinese come from at it. So you're never going to have, I guess, coherence between the Chinese communist and liberal democratic or Western leaning nations. Uh, so that's the first. And so the only way that you can influence two diametrically opposed systems or power centers, uh, Beijing being the antithesis of this the one or the target of shaping, is you have to have force. You have to have the the application of appropriate force at the right place with the right scale at the right time. And if you do that the right way, it doesn't mean you have to always have a carrier strike group in the South China Sea necessarily to thump the on the out chance that the Chinese send out their entire fleet. It, it's more to the point that on a day-to-day operations, you have an appropriate, maybe it's a Coast Guard presence, maybe it's uh, a maritime police, which is in some of these states, nations in Southeast Asia, a little bit lesser than professionally of a Coast Guard. Uh, So it's a scale, but it means most importantly, you have to be present and taking a page right out of the uh, U.S. counterinsurgency, our own doctrine, what Hunter's, I mean, just to continue on Hunter's discussion, what's needed from in a maritime context in the South China Sea is both a people-centric, which is when Hunter was talking about the millions of people that are involved in the fishing trade, but then the others- Whose livelihood in throughout Southeast Asia are tied to uh, resources for like oil and natural gas that comes from the seafloor. So there's a huge amount of prosperity and well-being that come to the individuals in the region. So that's the people-centric part, and that has a heavy economic piece that's not it's not a comfortable fit for contemporary military, let alone naval thinkers in the Pentagon. So it's it's an uncomfortable reality. And the Chinese are taking advantage of that. The other part, the other aspect, right out of our own coin doctrine, really thinking about land, but absolutely applies at sea. And that is you also have to have enemy centric. In this case, your adversary is the Chinese Communist Party. So you also have to look at what gets inside their mind. So if I could boil it all down, those are the two things that, at least in my contribution, I wanted to try to highlight is, You have to consider the economics, the diplomatic and the naval together, and you have to be present. And then the other part of it is you have to get in the mind of the Chinese because you really wanna change their pattern of behavior and you wanna change their risk calculation. And the South China Sea, for another discussion, is a subset of a Taiwan scenario, quite frankly.
1: Do you guys see any indication that the current administration recognizes this as a problem and recognizes it in a way that would change the current behavior um, either at the diplomatic or at the military level thus far? Um, Are there positives that you can point to um, or are we continuing to send sort of tacit approval to the Chinese by not acting strong enough?
2: Hunter and then Brent. Well, I think that one of the key purposes of the project is to, is to essentially bring together the leading minds that we have to begin thinking and, and formulating in this, this incredibly cool way in the open and in real time, a new approach to the South China Sea. Because essentially the approach that we've taken over the last, you know the, the better part of 10 years Has been to largely ignore what China is doing. If this kind of accept that notion that China's maritime insurgency in the South China Sea is kind of a distraction from this, you know, the 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 real threat of you know the really the prospect of a super high end war, and this has ignored the fact that again again China is waging a dual track strategy. They are yes, they're preparing to win by war, and at the same time, they're doing everything possible to win without fighting. Today, they are synthesizing Sun Tzu and Mao. Sun Tzu being all about you have to figure out how to win without fighting. That's the height, height of skill in strategy. And then Mao is the is you know the he wrote the book on insurgency and revolutionary war, and everybody you know goes to Mao as, as, when they are dev- devising you know how do you how do you wage an insurgency and how do you uh, How how can you achieve your political ends from a position either from a position of disadvantage or from a position where you're you're looking to impose a new set of political authority and you're not necessarily looking to fight a conventional sequential force-on-force decisive engagement with the military um, forces that are defending the established order? So if, if we ignore. And we have to understand that China can win by either of these lines of effort. They can win by war, or they can win without fighting. And if and if you you don't, we do not have the luxury of a choice, as some some commentators seem to suggest that we do. That we can only focus on the high end fight, nor can we only focus on the low end. If you if you ignore the high end and you don't prepare for conflict, then your then ultimately deterrence will fail. So you have to do both. And so. What, this pro- what the project is designed to do is to get the leading minds that we have from around the world thinking about well, how can we do this? How can we find you know, an appropriate balance between that high end warfighting readiness and you know, making sure that we can win without fighting, without you know, ideally finding synergies between the two, without sacrificing uh, much, if anything, if, if possible, uh, between these, these two sometimes competing imperatives? And in terms of the leading thinkers that we we have brought on board, we really have. And you know, I think the the, the concentration of leading thinkers that we've brought on board uh, sh- that really should get people's attention and get get people listening. Because you know, when you have you know James Holmes who wrote the book on Chinese maritime strategy in the Western Pacific, when you've got Jeffrey Till who is one of the preeminent uh, maritime strategic theorists of our time, uh, when you have you know. Are you, Brian, so Brian Clark is the—he's um, the person that the Navy turns to whenever they're trying to figure out what their force structure is. Brent Sadler you know, is one of the—you know—the the key architects of the pivot to Asia while he was in uniform during the Obama administration. Uh, Peter Swartz is the architect of the 1980s maritime strategy. His article on the way, and I mean, w- when you have these brilliant minds coalescing to say, "Okay, how do we solve this problem?" Regardless of what you know, how much attention you know ad, 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 this administration or the the previous ad, or previous administrations have paid to this problem, um, we got the, we got the our best people on it, and 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 wh- whoever is in charge should be paying attention because we we've got our best minds on this, and certainly the Chinese are paying attention, and that that I think has been quite the reaction. There has been quite interesting. Uh, this the South China Morning Post ran a, a fascinating article. Uh, a week or two ago, which quoted a number of Chinese experts who basically said, hey, if the Americans do this maritime counterinsurgency operation, that would be a huge problem for China. And there's this one expert uh, who talked about, he, he, he used this wonderful imagery where he said that, he talked about, he said that the Southeast Asian navies and coast guards, by them, when they are by themselves, they are weak and they are divided and they are outclassed by China. But, the, but that, that these... Navies and coast guards. If, if the Americans are su- successful in building a regional approach, as uh, as the project's contributors are advocating, and Brent I think articulates really well the importance to take a regional approach to the challenge. And these Chinese commentators are like, "Hey, if the Americans take this regional approach and they are able to knit together these Southeast Asian navies and coast guards, they can become a unified and powerful force if the Americans come to lead them." I mean, what a you know that last part, but outstanding imagery. Uh, I I think that it's, uh, and I I agree with that guy. And I think um, so we've got in the August issue of proceedings, uh, a longtime colleague of um, Captain Sadler, uh, Captain Josh Taylor, who's currently in the Indo-Pacific Command uh, J5. uh, He's got a campaign plan for how you could start doing the very thing that these Chinese experts are afraid of. That's going to be in the next issue. I'm going to interrupt you just just for a
1: second because um, and I don't I don't want to get political and I I don't mean um, to be to poke at the Biden administration. I I, I think intellectually what you guys have written thus far and what you have teed up makes great sense. I I, I guess what I and maybe Brent, you can help Mm -hmm. me out here. Yeah. Is this something that is likely to happen during the uh, during the the current administration or and, and if not, what yeah. prevents it from happening? Right. Is it a resourcing thing? Yeah. Is it a is it a doctrine? Is it you know, are we are we not creative enough? What, what is preventing us from doing this uh, r- right now?
3: Sadly, it's a little bit of everything. I mean, it's not it's not necessarily a partisan issue. Um, because in the last five years, um, there is a there's been a consensus now, and you see it with the way Congress just voted to override the president's you know inadequate budget uh, again. So you have large numbers of Democrats and Republicans that realize that the threat is 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 upon us now, and they're putting money behind it. So there's a at least you know money talks, and it's talking loud on security right now. So in that regard, it's good. So that's the resourcing part. Despite, I would say, what I'm seeing on the political arena inside the executive branch, there seems to be a return of pre-2012 thinking inside the White House and maybe over at the State Department that's trying to roll back to a time where China was less overtly uh, coercive and aggressive. The problem is, is that's that's not going to happen. And uh, many of the many of our partners and allies in the region are suffering direct coercion from China sustained for several years. And so um, it's an unfortunate distraction. So in in the executive, I see some of this, um, but overall it seems that there is an awareness that still carries the day. Uh, I think this is partly what's animating the fact that we don't really have a real national security strategy nor do we have any clear guidance that indicates what our China strategy is really going to be I mean what's come out of the Pentagon and well as what's come out of the Secretary of State is not it's not really giving us enough to act on yet or to real clear so that it's given way to this this debate this political debate policy debate that's coming out in the fore um but I am encouraged that this discussion thanks to the work of that Hunter's done on this effort. And that is to bridge the peacetime competition and connect it directly into the war fighting preparation. Not too many years ago, we all thought in uniform in very discrete phase zero, phase one, phase two, phase three all the way up to, of the phases of conflict. And, and they were very discrete binary triggers that you pass through. Thankfully the last, since 2014, 15, we've moved to a scale a, a, a grace, a graying of that scale of peacetime and conflict, and it can go backwards and forwards. That's very healthy. You see it in the 2018 NDS. I, I have every re- reason to believe that the same thinking is permeating in the classified NDS. That's, that's been an update to that one. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful, but it certainly means that we need to still be very vigilant and drive and win the internal domestic political, as well as ideological distrust, debates here in, this, in, the, in the capital, quite frankly. So uh, it's good, but I got to stay vigilant to keep moving forward.
0: Uh, and we're, we're pretty much out of time here, but Brent, before we go, I know that you were just out in Japan and you talk about the things that Chinese are doing among them. They've been very, very, very provocative over the last couple of months, two or three, four months in terms of aircraft flying throughout all, all around Japan, encircling Japan routinely flying into their air identification zones mm-hmm. they there have been several at least two uh, ship formations yeah. that have completely encircled the japanese home islands the russian ship has mm-hmm. also done this um they're they're all closely watched by the japanese uh, self-defense forces and you know but they're doing this to be seen there's nothing surreptitious about it they're they're out there going na 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 mm-hmm. and what is that from the japanese point of view you were just out there how how are the japanese viewing these these, these provocations the media mm. the 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 uh, regional media makes a lot out of this stuff yeah what do you think this looks like from japan
3: so it's concerning to me from the perspective that it could distract from the main focus which needs to be down towards okinawa and senkaku's and taiwan and the Japanese have been doing their own rebalance for the better part of 10 years and prioritizing their military and their investments to that part. My concern is that what the Chinese and the Russians and now you got the North Koreans kicking things up again, that they may trigger a domestic political issue in Japan where the Japanese shift, force their diplomat, their, their uh, politicians to focus in more closer to home, so to speak, in the sea of Japan. And that's really a distraction from where they really need, where their interests really are, their security interests in the Southwest. And the politicians are unaware of it. The military senior leaders don't have any plans uh, because they view it as it would be a distraction. So therefore, they're going to keep focusing in the Southwest. Now, that's probably accurate. But the problem is, is, if you haven't considered and have a plan in mind how you're going to adequately not overreact to a Chinese provocation in the Sea of Japan, it makes it more likely the Japanese public drives a domestic narrative that's unhelpful strategically in deterring China in a conflict in the Senkaku's or Taiwan. So that that's what I saw. Um, I'm I'm not I'm not uh, negative. I'm not positive on on everything right now, but I'm hoping to raise awareness because the first event that kicked this all off was in 2019. The Chinese and the Russians flew strategic nuclear-capable bombers uh, around Takashima, Dokto Island. And this is disputed between Japan and South Korea. And rather than the Japanese government and the South Korean government at the time getting mad at the Russians and the Chinese, they got mad at each other. And, and having two allies have an on-side goal is not where we wanna be. And so big, th- big focus is how can we make sure that that doesn't happen again? And the Chinese and the Russians have been repeating this every year since 2019. And as you mentioned, they sailed a ten-ship surface action group right through Tsugaru Straits. Which, if you, if anyone that's listening to familiar with it, you can. It's easy to see anything that passes through from either side of the shore of Hokkaido or Honshu. So it was a big statement, and they repeated it while you had the quad summit meeting in Tokyo back in May. So they're using it for strategic messaging for sure.
0: Well, folks, we we could talk about this for a long mm-hmm. time. And I'm glad that you guys are talking about it and are writing about it. Uh, So we're gonna have to to wrap it up for now. Our guests today have been uh, Hunter Stiers and uh, Brent Sadler, a senior fellow uh, at the National National Center for National Defense at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you very much for being on the program today, Hunter and Brent.
3: Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Now hear this,
2: now hear this.
0: All right,
1: you know what that means. This week, Mr. Cavis squawks about the need for greater access in Indo-PACOM.
0: Well, as we've just heard, another project is underway to heighten awareness of China's naval and maritime activities and to encourage a meaningful response from the U.S. Navy. The Maritime Coin Project joins other new efforts, such as the American Sea Power Project and the Navy League Center for Maritime Strategy, as well as more established groups, in sounding the alarm and pointing to the need for a more vigorous American response. But there's one more group it would be nice to hear from, or simply just open the door, and that group is the U.S. Navy itself. Any number of people out in the Western Pacific are reporting privately and professionally, but not so publicly, about China's continually aggressive behavior in the South China Sea, the East China Sea, the Sea of Japan, even the Coral Sea, and many other areas. But we don't see or even hear what the Chinese are doing hardly ever any video or images or audio recordings of radio transmissions. When the U.S. Navy challenges China's excessive territorial claims, whether through freedom of navigation maneuvers, near disputed territories, or Taiwan Strait Passages and the waterway between mainland China and, and Taiwan, the U.S. side almost never shows the Chinese warships or aircraft buzzing nearby, or releases the audio of the Chinese radio warnings and protests. Just lame images, yes, lame images, taken on board the U.S. ship or the ship itself, or of people on board intently looking at something we can't see. What is the point of that? You go out, make a demonstration, but don't even show what's going on. These images have no impact at all. Yes, the Chinese see the American ships, but the American public doesn't see anything other than images that could have been taken in Chesapeake Bay. Whoop-de-doo. The Chinese routinely protest these naval maneuvers all over their government-controlled media, stories often picked up by other regional news services. They even released two images of the recent FONOPs of the U.S. destroyer Benfold near the Paracel Islands on July 13th, one showing the Chinese close by the Benfold reportedly shooing away the Americans. The U.S. Navy itself really doesn't have to do much to get the word out about what this looks like. Here's a tip. Let the civilian media do it. If the U.S. simply offered media the chance to embark a U.S. cruiser or destroyer or a P-8 aircraft on patrol in the region and simply report what they see, it would go miles to raising awareness of China's activities, awareness that undoubtedly, over time, would prompt more support for a more effective response. There are high-level entities in the American defense and political establishment dead set against such a move the commander of U.S. Pacific Command for one, and others in the upper levels of the Pentagon and elsewhere. They are wrong to oppose media access. From what I've heard, the Chinese are aggressive, threatening, sometimes belligerent, sometimes antagonistic, and quite often simply pushy. It would be good if we could see for ourselves and report back to the world.
1: Chris? Well that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Maradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be sure to follow us at Cavas Ships on Twitter and remember this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud and Spotify. I'm Chris
0: Cervello and I'm Chris Cavas. Thanks for listening and bye-bye. Hey.